My name's Matt, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, one of the pastors here, and so glad that you're with us. Really great seeing that video. Love the Bergman family. So good to see a little update from them and to hear from Kyle about all the, all the good stuff coming up here at FBC. So with that, uh, let me pray again, and we will turn our attention to God's Word. So would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we love you, and we come to you with grateful hearts today, with humble hearts, uh, just aware, Lord, of our need. And so we pray that as we open your word, you would help us and guide us and teach us by your spirit. Pray that you would help us to apply these truths to our lives. Lord, help us to see you clearly. And we just give you this time and ask that you would move freely in this place. Comfort us where we need comforting and challenge and convict us where we need to be challenged and convicted. Lord, we love you. We give you this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, hey, go ahead and open up your Bible with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. Again, 1 Peter chapter 4. That's where we're going to be spending our time together this morning as we continue this series that we are calling Life in Exile. We're now for a few months now. We've just been walking through the book of 1 Peter a little bit at a time and exploring this theme, this idea of being in exile, which is someone who is not at home. But in this case, we're not talking about primarily an issue of geography, but the truth that followers of Jesus are living in exile in this life. They are a bit out of sorts, uh, not quite at home in the world around them because of their commitment to Jesus. And so we've been exploring what does it look like for us today to live in light of that? You know, whenever you join a, a team or a, a new company, perhaps you get a new job or you become a part of some new community, there are certain expected changes that come with that new role or identity. And specifically, there are certain things that you may have to stop doing. For example, when I lived in Denver and was going to seminary, I worked part-time at Chick-fil-A. Come on, Chick-fil-A, the, the chicken shack, as we called it affectionately. And at Chick-fil-A, as an employee there, I was no longer able to rock a beard. I don't know if that's a, a company policy everywhere, but at that specific chicken shack, we had to say no to a beard. We had to be clean shaven, everybody had to be looking presentable, so no beards. I know that that wouldn't sit well with some of the men here in this room. But for us, that was something we had to do. Also, when I swam and played water polo in high school, I joined the team and then I had to say no to certain eating habits, eating a lot of junk food, eating huge meals before practice or before games because I needed to be agile and able to swim and not drown in the water. And so I had to say no to those particular eating habits. If you're a mom here in the room that you know that when you became a mom, you had to say no to certain things like personal time and sleep. <laughs> sleep because your new child would not allow it. And so with a new role, a new identity comes expected changes, sometimes by things that we have to say no to, but also by new things that we start to say yes to or embrace because of that new identity. For example, at Chick-fil-A, I had to start saying the phrase, my pleasure, 
That wasn't a part of my normal vocabulary or repertoire, but then as an employee there, hey, got to learn to say it whenever somebody says thank you. Or as a water polo player and a swimmer, I had to say yes to swimsuits that were too small. <laughs> I had to wear a Speedo, it's true. It's just part of it. There are pictures to prove it. When I became a dad, I had to say yes to bad jokes and getting a list of bad jokes in my repertoire so I could embarrass my daughter Zoe one day. And so, I bring this up, not just so we could have a laugh, but because it relates to living the Christian life. When you become a Christian, there are certain expected changes that come with that. And those look different. Some of them are going to be things that we say no to now because we are Christians. And some of those expected changes will things that we say yes to, things that we move towards and values and a lifestyle that we embrace. And so I bring this up because the text we're looking at today is going to show us both sides of that coin, things that we say no to now as Christians and things that we are to say yes to. So look with me at chapter 4, verse 1, and we'll kind of start to walk through it together. Uh, verse 1 says this. It says, therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Now, these first uh, six verses are going to have a lot of different things going on, but kind of the unifying theme is what we see in verse 2, what we just read. It says, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. And so there's this contrast for Christians between living a sinful life based on pursuing our own human desires, and living a life focused on God's will and what he would have for us. And as we talked about to start this morning, being a Christian will mean saying no to certain things. And so here we see it means saying no to sin, saying no to a life based on our own human desires. You know, sin is a concept that sometimes is hard for us to understand or fully grasp. What does it mean? At the root of it, sin is about when our hearts do not love and honor God. Again, when in our hearts we don't love or honor God, and so we are led to actions, words, thoughts that go against His will and go against his commands. We disobey God and live for ourselves. And sometimes that's really visible and clear, like stealing handbags from old women in Rayleigh's, or sometimes it's really subtle, like entertaining lustful thoughts within uh, the quiet privacy of our own minds. But Peter's point here, though, is you notice about suffering and how suffering actually helps us as followers of Jesus, say no to sin. Verse 1, he says, whoever suffers in the body, whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. It's kind of a strange phrase, and people have wondered, well, exactly what is he getting at here? The heart of the idea is that 
whoever suffers and endures trials and mistreatment for their faith is showing, is displaying that sin does not rule in their lives. Right? Their willingness to suffer shows that they have this passion for God, this commitment to Jesus, that sin no longer has power over them. And verse 1 says this is the same attitude that Jesus had. He served the Father, honored the Father, trusted God in all things, even unto suffering and death. And verse 2 shows this really, again, counterintuitive idea that suffering can be good for us. I know that's a really weird concept, but God can actually use suffering to bring about good things in our lives. Verse 2 says, as a result of this suffering, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. And so as a result of suffering that we endure, we can live for God's will and not for our own sinful desires. You know, C.S. Lewis has famously said that God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. That God shouts in our pain. He uses our pain. He uses our suffering to wake us up and to draw us closer to him and to help us love him even more. This would be especially encouraging and needed for Peter's audience. Christians living in the first century facing suffering and trials and challenges for their faith. He's saying God is actually not abandoning you. This, this suffering is not a sign of God being absent from your life, but it's actually a sign that God is at work in your life. He's going to use this for your good, that you would now live a life more focused on him. You know, it continues in verse 3. He says, For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in, in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. It's interesting what he's doing here. He's saying, hey, we're calling you to say no to sin, and let's be honest, you've spent enough time saying yes to sin. Am I right? That's what he's saying. Spent enough time in your former ways embracing sin and all that that means. It was common in the Greco-Roman world to live this sort of wild lifestyle that the text is speaking of, filled with lust and drunkenness and idolatry. All of this would have been normal. In social circles, different gatherings amongst friends or social clubs would often last far into the night. They often included heavy drinking. They often resulted in men eventually pursuing slave girls or slave young boys to gratify their sexual desires. And so such social gatherings were common. They were filled with pagan worship and honoring false gods. So Peter's saying, hey, that's, that's what you used to do. That's how you used to live. That was normal in society for you. And verse 4 reinforces this. He says, hey, they are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. 
know, maybe some of us can really relate here, especially if you are a new Christian, or you can think back to when you became a Christian, if that was later in life. Maybe people were really surprised that you had made that decision. People were really surprised that you were no longer doing the things that you used to do. Your old friends and your old family members didn't understand this change in you. Maybe they criticized this change in you, maybe insulted you for no longer going along with kind of the old things that you used to do, right? Maybe now as a Christian, you no longer really wanted to just gossip about people and sit around and tear other people down. And so when you stopped doing that, your friends said, hey, what's your deal? What's gotten into you? Maybe you no longer wanted to embrace getting drunk and drugs. And so when you stopped doing that, your friends say, oh, what's your deal? What's wrong with you now? Some holier-than-thou Christian. Or maybe you've embraced God's design for sexuality and no longer view it as this kind of casual, open thing. And your friends don't understand why you're not sleeping with your boyfriend or why you're not sleeping with your girlfriend. You Christians are so weird. Maybe they insult you. Peter's saying, hey, that might happen as you learn to say no to sin. People aren't going to understand. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you're, you're hearing all this, and you're like, I knew it! I knew where this pastor was going. Legalism, don't do the bad stuff. Stop sinning. The sign says good news outside, but I knew it. I knew it was going to come in the door. I was going to get a bunch of rules, a list of things not to do. Christians just want to kill my joy. There it is. Anybody? Maybe? Well, let's, let's talk about that. And let's remember a couple things. First, that uh, the Bible has plenty of commands. Plenty of commands, plenty of rules, plenty of, of ways that we are to live. That God, a holy and perfect God, calls us to live in certain ways and do certain things and not do other things. And that his commands are, are good for us. And so, being a, a gospel-centered church, or a church that focuses on good news and the grace of God, is not about just a free-for-all where we don't talk about commands or we don't talk about the way the Bible tells us to live. We just say, hey, do whatever you want. That's not what being a gospel-centered church is all about. Rather, focusing on the gospel means we need to think differently about how we are going to obey and why we obey. A key text in all of this is Titus chapter 2. I have it on the screen here for us to read. It says this, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, a simple question from this text. What is it that teaches us to say no to ungodly living? It's the grace of God. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness. And so, it's not just more law that teaches us to obey. We have to know the rules better and be stricter 
more harsh about keeping the rules, and that's going to make us obey. No, he's saying it's the grace of God. It's the love of God. It's the mercy of God. When we understand the gospel and how Jesus came to die for us, we deserve death and separation from God and judgment because of our sin. But God came and made a way for us to be forgiven of our sins reconciled to this God who loves us. And that's a free gift. It's not something we earn. It's not hoops that we jump through in order to have God's favor. It's freely offered to you and to me, to whoever would trust in Jesus Christ. And so, when we remember the grace of God and focus more wholeheartedly on the grace of God, we will learn to say no to sin. Not in order to earn the favor of God, but because we have the favor of God in Jesus Christ. And so we want to please him. And so commands and rules in Scripture are not bad in themselves or unhelpful in themselves, but often commands and rules are not always helpful if they're by themselves, meaning if we separate them from the grace of God, then we slip into legalism. But when we talk about the grace and the salvation of God, it of course makes sense then to talk about how are we to live in light of that. And so we have to think in light of this text, if Peter is saying, hey, you're going to say no to sin and people aren't going to understand it, people might insult you for it, we have to think, are there things today in our world that are just normal, that people accept and embrace and run towards, but as Christians we should be saying no to. As Christians, we should be standing out because we don't run along with the crowd in that way. I think there are probably plenty of things that come to mind for us as I ask that question. I think one of them, just one of them, because of time I want to speak to, is the way we talk, the way we use our words. It has become so common, just normal and expected, that we uh, slander other people that we gossip, that we just spew our anger at people, whether it's in person or on social media. It's just become normal to be critical and unrelenting and how harsh we can be towards other people rather than carrying ourselves with grace and patience and understanding. And so what would it look like if Christians started to say no to that impulse to cut other people down and instead started to speak with grace giving people the benefit of a doubt, loving people even when they disagree with us. So are we learning to say no to things that people outside of these walls readily embrace? Now, he's going to say, hey, people might not understand why you're living the way you are. And they maybe are going to insult you about it. Maybe they're going to make you think twice about following Jesus and whether you really want to. He says in verse 5, but, hey, they, the people insulting you, they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And so Peter tries to give us some perspective. He's trying to say, hey, we all will have to stand before God one day as judge. We'll have to give an account of our lives. And so it's his opinion that matters, not your peers. And he continues in verse 6, and he says, for this, reason, or for this is the reason the gospel, the good news, was preached 
even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. Okay, kind of a lot going on in that verse, but essentially saying the gospel was preached to those who are now dead. They were alive, they heard the gospel, they have now died, they've died in the body. However, the power and the promises of the gospel did not end at death. But as Christians, we believe in life after death, that there's accountability after death, and that either leads to judgment before a holy God or pardon and salvation in Christ for those who trust in him. Now, here we should pause and think about how to understand the concept of judgment and a judgment day that we'll all stand before a holy and righteous God. Sometimes when we hear that, when we read passages like this, it sounds crazy or it sounds uh, harsh or ancient or outdated and we have a hard time with it. I want you to be encouraged if that's you because uh, this would have sounded just as strange and odd to the first century audience as it does to us because accountability after death was not really a widely taught normal concept in the pagan world. And so this sort of claim that we all will stand before God one day would be somewhat strange, likely offensive to people in the ancient world in the same way maybe it's offensive to some of us here today. Some of us possibly grew up in churches that really overemphasized judgment, churches that were communities that really lacked grace, that operated primarily out of fear and control. And so because of our past experiences with the concept of judgment, we uh, push back against texts like this. We say, I don't, I don't like that now that I've grown up. I don't want to believe in a God like that. And so I want to talk about love and grace and forgiveness. Sure, that's all good. But when we talk about sin and judgment and condemnation, I don't, don't want to go there. And if that's you this morning, I think if most of us heard your story, if most of us heard how you grew up or the things maybe you saw or experienced, we'd probably understand a good amount of where you're coming from and why these truths would be really uh, off-putting to you. So I want to recognize that, saying some of us are coming in with that. But we, we should all have the desire to come to the text and really say, okay, what is really true? What is God really saying through these passages? Not necessarily just what do I hope or feel is right or want to be true, but what does the text say? And so here, it's showing there is this, this future day where we all will have to give an account to God for how we live. And yes, of course, God reveals himself in Scripture as a God of forgiveness and mercy and love and grace. But he also shows that he's a God of justice, that judgment is real, and that he will hold evil and evildoers accountable. And that's actually good news. We want God to hold people accountable. And so Peter is pointing his audience to the return of Jesus and to a judgment day as, as good news. He wants them to look forward with hope that God will one day restore his good world, will set all things right. 
And so, he wants us to be prepared for that. In verses one through six, he's talking a lot about, hey, saying no to sin as a Christian. Saying no to sin, moving away from sin. But being a Christian is not just about what we say no to. It's not just about the things that we're against. And Christians are anti this or anti that. No, as a Christian, there are things that we are to say yes to. And so what are Christians for? What are we supposed to be for and embrace and champion with joy? And that's where the text turns in the next four verses. Take a look at verse 7. It says, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind, so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. And so he continues. He says, hey, we're not going to talk anymore right now about the things I don't want you to do, this life of sin I want you to leave. Instead, I'm going to talk about what I want you to do. And he, he recognizes that the context for this is that the end is near. Not necessarily that Jesus is going to return tomorrow, but we are living in the last days. The New Testament authors understood that with the resurrection of Jesus, now humanity was in kind of the last era of human history. We don't know how long it will last. We're not going to try and make dates or charts or, or figure out the timing of that, but there should be this understanding that we're drawing close to the end. So this generation and every generation since and going forward should be marked by the sense of urgency, the sense of alertness, the sense of prayerfulness. And so we have to ask, are we praying urgently? Are we praying to God on behalf of our city, on behalf of our friends, our family members, our neighbors who don't know the Lord? Do we have this sense of desiring God's kingdom to come, praying for peace, praying for justice in our world? I think sometimes it's so easy to get distracted and not pray. There are so many things that are easier to do than prayer. <laughs> there are so many things that take our attention away and kind of lull us into this sleepy state where we're comfortable and entertained, but we're not as attuned to the things that God is doing or saying. Pastor and author John Piper has this incredible quote where he says this, one of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook, and we could add Instagram to that, will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from lack of time. Again, one of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook, and I guess what, Instagram, Snapchat? Is that, I feel old. Instagram, Snapchat, whatever other social media, you know, throw them in there. One of the great uses of them will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from lack of time. It's so easy for us to get distracted rather than pray. And so Peter's saying, hey, I want you to say yes to prayer. And be a people committed to prayer. And he goes on. He says, I also want you to say yes to love, right? Look at verse 8. Above all, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins, which sounds a lot like 1 Corinthians 13 that says, love keeps no record of wrongs. 
It's not that serious sin is to be swept under the rug or not dealt with. That's not what he's talking about. But he's rather saying, in love, I'm not going to turn every little offense into a reason for conflict. I'm not going to let every little thing become something to fight about. Reminds me of one of my favorite Proverbs, Proverbs 12, 16. Fools show their annoyance at once, but the prudent overlook an insult. The wise or the prudent overlook an insult. And I think largely we've lost the art of overlooking an insult. We've lost the art of forbearance because we're addicted to outrage. We're addicted to outrage and venting and letting people know how angry we are. I mentioned last week this book, Unoffendable, about how Christians are to be refreshingly unoffendable, who forgive quickly and do not hold on to their anger. And there's a chapter in that book titled, Everyone's an Idiot But Me. (laughs) And sometimes we operate that way. Everyone is an idiot but me, and so we're gracious with ourselves and patient with ourselves and give ourselves the benefit of the doubt, but with everyone else, well, they're just an idiot, and we're quick to criticize and quick to condemn. Not as gracious with others. But what is Peter saying here? Saying, love one another deeply, and your love will cover over sins. Their love will, will teach you to let things go. I don't know about you, but it, it feels like sometimes for me, it's, it's hard to get through a day, just a single day, without feeling insulted or kind of offended or, or slighted or left out or ignored. It's hard to get through one day without feeling some of that in some sense. So it can be so exhausting uh, to hold on to that or to make it a point to address every little issue, every little uh, misspoken word maybe that someone sent our way. And so, of course, we are to deal with sin, serious sin. Of course, we're to address it, but not everything is something to get up in arms about. And I think that's what Peter is trying to tell us here. And if we can love that way, it will be refreshing and gracious and kind to one another. So say yes to prayer. Say yes to love. And he's saying now in verse 9, say yes to hospitality. All right, he says, offer hospitality to one another key qualifier, without grumbling. Have you ever offered hospitality to someone with grumbling? I have. Uh, And in the ancient world, you know, hospitality was, it was necessary for the church to exist, right? Churches didn't own buildings. So they had to meet in one another's homes. And they relied on the hospitality of members in the church for their worship gatherings. Also, when people would travel, they didn't have a lot of hotels or Airbnb up and running. And so you had to stay with friends or relatives. You relied on the hospitality of other people for lodging and for food. So we're called to host people, to feed people, to make them feel welcome. And to not put up banners like this. If you can read it, it says, please leave by nine. (laughs) At your next party, I don't recommend going and buying one of these. That's not the feel we're going for, right? So hospitality is not as necessary as it was in the ancient world. People usually can find a place to stay in a hotel or have some food, Uh, but we're still called to hospitality, to love people, 
to show the warmth and welcome of Jesus to our community and to strangers? That can be hard for us. That can take work. And I will say this too. Sometimes when we think about hospitality, we think about, well, that only means like make a pot roast and let someone sit on your couch. And if you can do that, you have the gift of hospitality. And that's part of it, like feeding people, having people in your home, that's part of it. But also I think we've kind of overlooked sometimes the concept of relational hospitality. That like wherever I go, wherever you go, you can have a spirit of hospitality. Not just in your home, but when you're at church, when you're at a party, when you're at an event, do you have an awareness of other people? And show relational hospitality that you make people feel welcome wherever you are. You take an interest in them, care about them. Help them feel safe around you. It's a gift, and it takes work. Peter's calling us to do this. The last thing he tells us to say yes to after prayer and after love and after hospitality is serving and using our gifts. See that in verse 10 and 11. It says, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. So what's he saying here? He's saying use your gifts. Not just talking about these natural abilities that you may or may not have, but how has God uniquely gifted you given you grace, it's kind of more true to the Greek, given you grace that you might steward it to bless other people. How does God use you and show up through you to be a blessing to your community and serve other people? We don't have time to go into all the details of spiritual gifts. We certainly could, and that would be a really good conversation. But here, Peter's aim is more general. It's more broad. He's talking about how we all have been gifted by God, right? those who trust in Christ, who are believers, who are walking with him, are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, as he chooses, gives us gifts. God shows up through us. God uses us each in different ways for the building up of the church, to serve other people, not for ourselves, but for other people and for the glory of God. And you notice here, it's interesting, Peter doesn't give a list of potential spiritual gifts. We see this elsewhere in Scripture. If we look at Romans 12, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we'll see Paul kind of saying, hey, you might have this gift, or you might have this gift. You might have the gift of teaching, or you might have the gift of serving, or the gift of hospitality, or the gift of cleaning toilets, or the gift of, you know, whatever it might be. Um, Cleaning toilets actually isn't in the Greek there, but he says, you might have this, or this, or this, or this. Peter doesn't do that. That's noteworthy. That Peter's not Uh, going to each specific gift, but he's saying, in general, you have been gifted by God for the good of other people, the good of your community. And so, broadly, some of you are gifted in speaking, right? Verse 11 talks about whenever you speak, if anyone kind of is gifted in that area, use your words to bless other people, recognizing you're speaking the very words of God, meaning you you represent Jesus as you are speaking. So do so with, with reverence, doing your very best to ensure that you are speaking as God would want you to. And he goes on in verse 11, some of you are gifted in in service, and if so, do so in the strength that God provides. Again, God is the source here. 
God is the one who provides the strength and this grace. So whether in word or, or deed, right, serve other people for God's glory. And I know that this is a little vague, and maybe that's frustrating for some of us, that I'm not kind of outlining exactly what your gifts might be. And sometimes we've taken, uh, or people have taken like spiritual gifts tests in the past. Maybe you're familiar with that. Like you can, you know, take a little questionnaire and answer some questions and figure out what your gifts are. And, and I don't, those aren't bad. Those aren't like unhelpful, but sometimes they're not the most helpful way to figure out how we are gifted and how God uses us. Because if we think about how, well, how did, how did they discover their gifts back in the first century? Like when Peter wrote this, how did the church, how did people figure out how they were gifted? It wasn't like he, he sent this letter and like attached in an email, like, hey, I've attached the spiritual gift survey. Could you like fill it out and email it back to me shortly and I'll let you know how you're gifted? Uh, he didn't do that. And so how, how did people figure out how they were gifted? Well, by spending time in community. It was by, by living in community, they would see and discover and realize how God used them to bless other people. It wasn't something done in isolation. It wasn't something like go home and take this little test online and then like figure out. No, it's live in community and then see how is God moving you to meet needs, to bless people, to lead, to serve, to care for those around you. That's how we should discover our gifts. And so, a little bit of homework if you're in a small group, you're already going to do this. We, we want our small groups this week to talk about, hey, how do you see God using the people in your small group? So this week at small group, you'll have a chance to kind of talk about, hey, I, I see God use you in this way. I see God show up through you in this way. And you can encourage one another. And that's actually really healthy, really biblical, really important. If you're not in a small group still, you can have that conversation with friends or peers, your spouse possibly. Talk about, how do you see God using me? What gifts do you notice in me? How do I bless people? How does God work through me? It's a really important question that I encourage you to talk about. And so we've covered a lot of ground this morning, people. We've covered a lot in these first 11 verses. To kind of sum it up, again, remember when you join a new team, when you join a new company, one of the defining marks that you might have is maybe a jersey for your team, maybe a new uniform that you have to wear that kind of publicly, visibly, externally shows your new role or your new identity. But for a Christian, it's not as simple as just putting on a new team jersey or putting on a piece of clothing. Rather, we are going to show this and display this by how we live. Right? And that's what this whole text has been about, how we are to live and thus show our commitment to Christ, whether it's by things that we say no to or by the things that we say yes to and embrace. All for the glory of God. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. And there's been a lot here for us to digest. And we just pray for your help that, Holy Spirit, you would use this text and your word here to teach us, guide us, change us, transform us, challenge us. Not only to see the do's and don'ts of following you, Lord, uh, but also to see your grace clearly. Jesus, how you have saved us. How we now belong to you. We have this hope in you. This freedom and joy in you. So we pray that you would uh, move us to obedience. 
to godly lives, Lord, for your glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen.